I believe I was gifted a second chance in life with my sobriety. And I also believe that all that the creator wants back in return is for me to instill positive change, big or small, in myself, in my community, and in creation. Welcome to The Problem Spaces. These are the stories at the intersection of life and business life. I'm Lisa Grogan, and on today's show, we're talking to Clarence Kakaji, who originates from the Chaplow Cree First Nation and is a visionary Indigenous leader. Clarence is the founder of Crow Shield Lodge, a dedicated place for land-based healing. He is an author, a dad, and he's the Aboriginal Services Coordinator for Conestoga College. Clarence has held a variety of roles in organizations that support outreach and housing in the community, and these roles have made him a well-known and highly regarded leader in Waterloo Region. Clarence has been very open about his life, the challenges he has faced, and trauma that is part of who he is, and the hope that he brings to so many, including me, through his unwavering belief that, and I quote, just because someone stumbles and loses their way, it doesn't mean they are lost forever. I am deeply honored to know Clarence and to have him in my life as a friend and mentor. I've spent time at Crow Shield Lodge and have experienced the approach to healing that Clarence is bringing to people and inviting so many to be part of challenging and much needed conversations that support education, healing, reconciliation, and land stewardship. This will be a conversation that brings Clarence's personal experiences forward in a tough and hopeful way. And today, Clarence will share his stories and open up about leadership, life, and navigating problem spaces. Welcome, Clarence. Good morning, Lisa. Uh, Thank you for that wonderful, thoughtful, and kind introduction. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you don't mind, I would like to open this with a prayer, with a virtual smudge, and then with a song, and then we can get into our conversation. I am Kiwe Tinwayunane, and that translates into North Windman. I am from the people of the Meshkegawak, people of the river, Fox Lake Reserve, Chaplow Cree First Nation, Bear Clan, and I am a beautiful person. I'd like to say, Wache, Ane, Boju, Sego, to all of our Indigenous listeners out there, and to everyone else, I wish you all the best on today, tomorrow, and all the days after. So to open this up, I have some tobacco, and I'm going to pray with some tobacco, and then I'm going to put this tobacco into our smudge bowl, and I have some, uh, I have some sage, a pinch of cedar, and some lavender, and I'm going to put on the smudge in our bowl. So watch ane boju sego. I'm kiwe tinwe in the ne. I'd like to give thanks for this day. I'd like to give thanks for this life. I'd like to give thanks for the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, all the medicines that are gifted to us by creation, and the water that we consume. Also, as we come together today, I ask that we always remember our roles and our responsibilities within that circle of life. The roles and responsibilities to ourselves, to our children, to our family, and to our communities. I always ask that we remember where we fit in and that we we remember our connectedness to all. I ask that we remember our connectedness to the two-legged, to the four-legged, to the winged ones and swimmers. I ask that we always remember our connectedness to the crawlers, to the four winds, to all plants, to all trees, and to the rocks and the minerals and the mountains and the rivers and the streams and the oceans. All is equals within that circle of life. And I ask as we come together today that we come together in a good way with open hearts and open minds. Lisa, 
I forgot today was a podcast, so I put on my finest clothes. <laughs> you look great, Clarence. <laughs> ah, we need all kinds of, of medicine in our lives, and, and laughter is one of those medicines, right? Absolutely. So now that we have the smudge going, and that the smoke is coming up, the smoke is rising. So I want you to, to try to picture the gray white smoke coming up from the sage. First, we're going to wash our hands over it. We're going to wash our hands over that smoke and our medicine so that anything that we touch or create during the day, we're going to touch and create it in a good way and in a kind way. Then we're going to cleanse our eyes. If we're wearing glasses, we're going to wash that smoke over our eyes. We cleanse our eyes so that we can always see the best in people. And, um, so that we can see things in a good way and in a kind way. Then we wash that smoke and we bring it over the top of our heads so that any thoughts that we have will be good thoughts and kind thoughts. Then we wash our this the smoke with, um, we bring it up to our ears and we cleanse our ears so that as we hear things, we'll be able to hear them in a good way. We'll be able to also set our intentions for the day. Then we pull that smoke into our throats. We pull that smoke into our throats so that when we speak, we have a strong voice, and when we speak, we say kind words. Then I pull that smoke. I ask you to pull that smoke into your hearts. Pull that smoke right into your hearts so that you have empathy and you have love for yourself and love for others. Then I always like to pull the smoke right into the core of my being so I can stay centered. As I come out in this community and other communities and in creation as a helper. And then I wash the smoke down each one of my legs. We always wash the smoke down each one of our legs so that we can always remember how sacred life is with each step that we take as we walk on our mother, the earth. So we virtually smudged. And now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to sing a warning song. You know, when that sun comes up in the east and it greets us, it's one of the most special times in the day. They actually say about an hour before the sun comes up is, is one of the most sacred times that we as Indigenous people have. It's when, it's when it changes from, from night to day, and, um, and that's, that's the best time for us to be out there making our prayers. But this morning song, um, it just really resonates with me, you know, because there's so many opportunities with each day. And the opportunities that each day holds are endless. We just need to, we need to go out there and find them and, um, and to really experience and enjoy all the wonders that creation holds.
So when we sing and when we beat our drums, it's a form of prayer. So it's an honor for me to, to sing and to pray for us today. And it's an honor for me to also join you, Lisa, and Overlap for this podcast called The Problem Spaces. You know that word problem, it resonates with me a lot because uh, in reflection, I had a lot of problems growing up where I didn't fit in. I had a lot of unanswered questions. I knew I was different. And that was problematic for me. I was very problematic. Well, I just want to say, Clarence, thank you very much for giving us such a special opening to this podcast. And I appreciate it. And, you know, you and I were um, talking earlier and I was saying, you know, usually we start off, you know, when we talk to people about their early influences and early learnings or early mentors that they've had in their life. And I feel that, you know, I, I appreciate how open you have always been and how you will be today. And, you know, can you can you share um, your story, which I know starts before you, um, but can you share a little bit about what, what your, what your early childhood was and, and what some of those problem spaces may have been where you felt different and, and, and what was behind that? Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks for asking. You know, I'm, I'm pretty transparent. I'm writing a book and, uh, been working on it for a while. I'm actually meeting with my co-author this, uh, this weekend to uh, hopefully wrap that up. You're right. My story doesn't start with me. It starts with my parents. It starts with my ancestors. You know, my my dad was in the residential schools. My uncles and my aunts were in the residential schools. It's had a horrendous impact on my family. And I am uh, a product of the 60 scoop. So that means that I wasn't really scooped, but I was placed in care of the Children's Aid Society. I became a crown ward when I was a year and a half and my sister was uh, three and a half. My mother tried to keep us in her care for as long as she could. But being a, a a young woman at 18 years old with two young children and her partner was not in the picture, she thought she made the best decision and that was to put us into the care of Children's Aid Society to hopefully give us a better life. I understand that now. I didn't understand that when I was growing up. So my sister and I, we were put into care. We were moved around a whole lot, probably six or eight different homes when we were young. We were even adopted once. And then we um, we stayed with this family who adopted us uh, for a while. And then things didn't work out. So they put us back into the system. And then we were moved around again until we ended up on a farm outside of Kitchener-Waterloo. We stayed with that family. I stayed for 13 years. My sister stayed for 10 years. And uh, that family was New Order Mennonites. So we were brought up by New Order Mennonites. We were um, Indigenous children being brought up by Mennonites. I can say that I was never abused on the farm. It was challenging. It was a bit strict because it was uh, a religious uh, upbringing. I had some values instilled at me in a very young age to be seen and not heard and speak when spoken to. I could live with that. And I'd always explore on the farm, but then I I knew that I was different. And when I started to come to terms with that, I was very young. And I think because I was moved around so much, whenever change would happen, even if it was good change, positive change, I would still get triggered at a very, very young age. They said that the first time that I ran away from the farm, I was about six or seven years old. And I, um, I grabbed my suitcase and, uh, And I dragged it out to the end of the farm, the lane. And I sat there for hours waiting. 
think I was waiting and I was hoping. All alone, a little boy, six or seven, waiting and hoping for somebody to come get me. Because um, I think at that age, I knew that there was something missing. That was that connection to a parent. So when I hear about uh, words like mother or father, that's all they are to me is just a word. Because, you know, I did meet my biological parents when I was 20, and I'm so grateful for that. And, and I have a huge family now on my mom's side and my dad's side, and I'm grateful for that. But there's certain words like mom and dad and love that just don't resonate with me because of, of conditioning. And, and that's the really unfortunate thing because I know that my foster parents did the best that they could do with what they had. But I was a very troubled and challenging adolescent, you know. I, I was very angry and I was lost and I was broken because there was parts of me that were missing. And that was my identity and that was my family. And it had a, had a big, big impact on me. Clarence, did you know that you were Indigenous? Um, like, did you grow up knowing that? Because, you know, you were taken away from everything. I mean, you had your sister, but did you know that you were Indigenous in this family? Or was that something that you found out about yourself sort of later? I think uh, in time, I think I was about nine years old, nine or 10 years old, where I knew that my sister and I looked the same. So I knew that we were family. I knew that we didn't belong to the cell that we were living with, the, the group of people we were living with. And I knew that, you know, when, when summer came, we'd, we'd tan up really good and we'd tan up really dark. And we had this connection to the earth and we always explored and, and we were just, we were always outside just doing stuff. So when we started to ask and inquire about our identity and some of our family history from our um, social workers at the Children's Aid Society, very limited information was shared with us. They said that, yeah, your dad is full Cree. And he was in the residential schools, and he's probably living on the streets of Toronto as an alcoholic, uh, a homeless uh, alcoholic wino, or he's probably deceased. So that was the information they gave us about our, our father, and then the information they gave about our mother was just her last name and where she came from. So that was all that we knew. And uh, we were never exposed to anything that was to do with culture growing up our whole lives. You know, we'd get postcards at, uh, from somebody traveling and, and they'd have that stoic uh, indigenous elder with a headdress, you know, looking into the sun. That was the extent of any kind of exposure to any indigenous culture that we were exposed to growing up. And I think, you know, it's incredible to me that that experience and that story still exists today. Like young people today still, you know, miss that connection to who they are. And it's interesting that it was in you and it showed up in you. How did you and your sister come to meet your parents when you were about 20? Like, how did that happen? Did you have help? Were there any, you know, sort of adults helping you through that? Or, you know, how did that come around? Yeah, that's that's a good story. It's, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try to share it as short as I can. So my sister was living in Toronto, and then she stayed in like uh, some kind of halfway house for women who are unwed. And she made some friends there in Toronto. And then she left. But I guess one of the friends that she made there was actually a really good friend with my biological cousin. And this happened like years after that this conversation came up that this girl, I guess my biological cousin's friend, said that when she was in Toronto in this, in this home for unwed mothers, she met a woman there 
that had the same last name. And then my cousin said, really? Because Kakaji is not a common name. <laughs> she said, yeah, and her first name was Cheryl. And my cousin almost fell to the floor. She said, we've been looking for those. She says, that's my family. And we've been looking for, for Cheryl and her brother, Michael, because Michael's my middle name and that's what I went by back then. She said, for, for about 20 years, we've been looking for them. Some more information was exchanged. And, and at that time, my sister was a punk rocker back in the 80s. So she had the great big mohawk and the, and the you know, the dark eyeliner and the little plaid and the, and the fishnet stockings and the Doc Martens and all that stuff. And there wasn't many punkers back in Kitchener in that day. So my dad got this information from my cousin. He found out that my sister was a punk rocker, that she lived in Kitchener. So he drove from Toronto some Saturday afternoon, drove around, and he was looking for punk rockers. So he found some punk rockers, and he says, hey, do any of you know a Cheryl Kakaji? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, could you help me find her? So within, I think, an hour, my dad drove from Toronto, found my sister, and then that evening, it was a Saturday night, I was 20, 21 years old, and I got a call from my sister, and she says, hey, bro, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm partying, it's a Saturday night, and with some friends, because I, I live there, and I paid room and board. She says, okay, well, I'm coming over in about 20 minutes, and I'm bringing someone with me. I said, okay, not, that's cool, who are you bringing with you? And she said, our father. And then it was like just dead silence. And these waves of emotions rolled over me, and I said, like, you got to be joking. She goes, no, bro. She says, I am serious. Our dad is here right now. He's standing beside me, and I'm going to see you and him, and we are going to be connected in 20 minutes. And then she hung up, and then I called my, uh, I called my foster dad, you know, because those are my parents. They raised me. And I, and I said, like, Dad, what do I do? And he says, you know what to do. This is something that you've always wanted. He said, meet your dad. I said, I'm scared. He goes, yeah, of course. But he says, like, do this, do this. So uh, 20 minutes later, my sister showed up, bang on the door. She walks in. We're sitting in the kitchen. Here comes in this indigenous man with hair, long hair, down to the middle of his back, who we look like, but he's a lot darker than us. So it was our dad. And I didn't know what to do. I, I was waiting for this my whole life. But when it was right there in front of me, and because I'm a runner, it took all of my courage not to run. And it took all of my courage not to punch my dad in the face. Because I said to him, straight up, I said, I don't know whether to hug you or to punch you in the face. It's great that you're here now. It's amazing that you're here now. But where were you all those years when we needed you? He said, I'm here. I'm never going to leave you again. We have a lot of catching up to do. And he said, I have a lot of explaining to do. And that was the beginning of me having a sense of belonging. Within a couple of days, my, uh, we went and visited my mom, who was remarried in Toronto. A couple of days later, I got to meet my half-brother and my half-sister. And then it's like the months through, through the first year, it was like my sister and I, we, we just started meeting cousins, uncles, and aunts, cousins, uncles, and aunts, um, second cousins, great aunts. It, it was from both sides, and it was just like, whoa, this is, like, this is almost like an overload. But it was so good. Because we finally had a connection to who we were, you know, to family, to identity, and to culture. And it made me feel really, really good. But then it made me feel really, really sad as to why we were put into, into care. It made me feel really sad as to hearing all of the stories and the horrendous things that my family 
on both sides have been exposed to because on my mom's side, we weren't very well off. They say we were poor. My mom was poor and and her family was poor, but they, they said they never, they never um, lacked anything. Yeah, they were poor, but they always had, they never lacked food. They never lacked clothes. They, they always had warmth and comfort and, and shelter and all that stuff. So that was the beginning of, uh, of finding out who the Kakajis are yeah. and where we came from and what we've experienced over the years. Well, and I, I remember you, you were part of our, you and I met a, a number of years ago and you were um, gracious enough to be part of our Better as Possible project. And we did a, a, a short film um, featuring your story, which could be a feature film and, and thus your, your, your book and your life story, uh, which we will all look forward to coming out. But I think I remember you um, sharing, you know, some of those audio recordings that you had um, from your grandfather or was that your father? That was was from my dad. From your dad and just hearing his voice. So for you as a young man, all of a sudden finding all of this family and extended family, but then also learning firsthand about the effects of residential schools in your own family. Like what was that? Was that something that you had any kind of knowledge of until you met your family or was that, you know, sort of an added really tough layer for you to take in at the time? I think back then, Lisa, everything was new. Everything was new. So this was just like another new chapter opening up of family historical history of Canadian history of a dark, dark time in Canada's history. And so I started visiting, uh, Shingwak Residential School, uh, Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie. That was Shingwak Residential School, and, and my family went to there. And I really started to see the impacts of what those schools did to people. I didn't see it so much from my dad, because I did get to spend 16 years with my mom and 18 years with my dad, and then they were gone. They made their journeys. But to see the, the everlasting effect of how those schools impact adults, I, you know, to see my aunt who was in her, her 70s um, and she'd go by this room and all of a sudden you could see she would just revert back into this small girl and she would start shaking and she would say, I can't be around this room because that was a room where I used to be abused in. And then my, my uncle who was um, who lived in Montreal and who also went there, he went back to that school after 30 or 40 years for the first time. And when he drove up to the front of Algoma University, he said, I can't go in the front. There's too many. He had to go in the back because it was just impacting him too much. It's sad. It's sad, Lisa. And, and now I have a, an 82-year-old uncle who just has these nightmares because his time in the school and, and when they're finding all of these, these bodies of these students, which I'm going to light a candle for right now. I always want to light the, a candle for these these children that they're finding so that they know they're loved and so that they know there's a light here and there's people for them and, and we'll help them get them back to their homes and their communities and their nations. So I always like to have that candle. Um, and, that, and then it started to make me angry. It started to really make me angry once I started to see the the history and the lineage of the residential schools and how it just keeps that is seeping into the next generation, you know, with, um, with dysfunction and and trauma. It's interesting because I was going to ask about, you know, sort of some of your early 
career experiences and, and, you know, how you found your path. And it's interesting because I think also just some advice for people today. When I went to Crow Shield Lodge back in the fall, you had a number of facilitators. And for my visit, there was Elizabeth Best and Sky Johns, and they shared their personal stories, but also they're in their young 20s. And their stories of, you know, starting work and being in professional environments that cause harm to them, you know, today. And so I sort of feel like, Clarence, can you share some of your story about how did you approach, you know, sort of in your early 20s, what you were going to do and what you're doing today probably isn't what you may have thought you were going to do back then. And I'm just curious, maybe just thinking about, you know, some of our young people today and thinking about their career paths. Do you want to take us through a little bit of your your story there? Back in my early adolescence, I, I struggled I struggled in school. I've always struggled in school. I dropped out of school when I was in my second week of grade 11, and I never went back until 30 years later, and I got my grade 12, and then I went to college. But So so when I struggled in school and I didn't have my grade 12, everybody's saying, Clarence, you're, you're never going to get a good job, you know, so... Anyways, so I was I was looking for work. Did I know what I wanted to be? Did I have any purpose, meaning, or direction in my life? No. <laughs> so so I was just trying to get any job. Any job would be a good job. So I started off working in a, in a felt company in Waterloo, and I stayed there for about a year. And then I met my parents. So then I moved to Toronto. And I was working with my uncle as a, as a pipe fitter. We were installing uh, fire systems in uh, residential units, like big fire systems, sprinkler systems. So I did that, and then I moved back to Kitchener, and then I worked for another uh, another felt company, and and I was I was doing okay. I was I was doing good, and then I started dating and living with my my high school sweetheart, my ex wife, and then her. Father got me a job at Lackey, uh, Lackey's Industrial, which were big uh, millwright movers, and they went into factories and moved presses and all that stuff. So I got a job there as an apprentice carpenter, and I worked there for a few years. And then that organization, in the early 90s, we went into a recession, and that organization closed. And then I got a job. I figured, you know, we're in a recession. There's not much work out there. Nothing is being built. So my carpentry skills aren't good. I said, people got to eat. People always need to eat. So I went looking and, uh, and I found this warehouse, uh, Willet Foods that was hiring. And then uh, Willet Foods turned into National Grocers and then National Grocers turned into Loblaws. So, and I stayed at that organization for 12 years. Yeah, it helped me get a house. It helped me, I guess, uh, find the Canadian dream, attain the Canadian dream. But you always have to remember, I was a high functioning addict my whole life. Up until 2010, my ex-wife gave me an ultimatum. She said, you either pick uh, the girls and me, the family, or you pick drugs and alcohol. At that time in my life, I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any supports. I didn't have any courage. I didn't have any strength. I didn't think that I could survive or live without drugs or alcohol. So I moved out a couple days later. And I just slowly from from then, um, I started to detach from everybody and everything that ever cared or loved loved me because I was consumed by shame. I was consumed by shame because what kind of man was I as a father to just walk away from a relationship that had my wife, my ex-wife and my and my two young daughters there. And I tried to stay connected to them to the best of my ability and be the father that I could be, but I was caught hard in the grips of addiction and I justified my distorted thinking by saying it would be better it would be better if I was out of their lives 
in the condition that I was in as their father. And I didn't see them for, for a while. Broke their hearts. They couldn't figure out where dad was. And I just drowned all that with, with drugs and alcohol. And then I slid into homelessness for about eight years. Caught, I was caught in that cycle because I didn't care. I was just so far gone, Lisa, or I was so far down this rabbit hole that there was no light. There was no light, and I was, I was okay with, um, with surviving. I was just surviving, sometimes day to day, minute to minute, second to second. I didn't realize that it was that length of time, Clarence. Mm-hmm. That it was about eight years. Yeah. I would get behind on my child support, mm-hmm. and, and then I would get a job. I would, I would pay that off, and then I'd walk away, and then I'd become homeless again. So for eight years, I was, I was caught in that cycle, just caught in that cycle, staying in churches, staying in shelters, uh, couch surfing, sleeping outside, and so what was it? What was the turning point for you? Death. I didn't want to die. And I could see that was coming up right around the corner if I kept abusing my body the way that I was doing it. I was I was a hardcore alcoholic. I'd be shaking so much in the morning. It would take two hands for me to have a cup of coffee or some water. I'd have my first drink in the morning. I I would get sick because it was just like poison hitting my my stomach. And then my body would would try to reject it. But it was was a very, very hard time in my life. And I, I could see that, you know, the people that I knew and the people that I was spending time with on the streets, they were having premature deaths and they were also having accidents and I could see that was my fate if I didn't figure out something. Plus I knew I had responsibilities. I knew I had responsibilities to myself. I knew I had responsibilities to my daughters. I knew I had responsibilities to my community and I knew I had responsibilities to creation. So even though all that darkness and all that muddy murky stuff is going here, there was still that hope that was shining down on me to say that you know what you have to do. And I tried, I tried, and I tried, but it, I didn't stop trying. And when, it, when the time was right, it was good, but it was hard. It was so hard. Sobering up was one of the hardest things I ever did. And you were able to access in our community um, uh, your services and support, because to your point, when you don't have any tools and you're trying to do it all by yourself... It's very, very challenging. So I think that you, was it House of Friendship that ended up being your spot? Well, the first one was a short-term 30-day program in Belleville. And I wasn't ready then, but eight months later, I was ready. And then I went to uh, 174 King under the House of Friendship umbrella, and I stayed there for seven months. I didn't want to leave. They had to force me to leave. I even had a, a brand new one-bedroom apartment at Supportive Housing of Waterloo that was fully furnished and all, all like it was great because I applied to go into that housing when I was living on the street. And they showed me and they gave me the keys. I looked at this apartment and I went back to the treatment center because I felt like I didn't have a home. I didn't have a place for so long. It, I didn't feel like I was worthy of it. And then that meant a lot of things. That meant... um. That meant responsibility, that meant life, that meant uh, obligations, that meant accountability, that meant commitment, like all of these things that I never had to live with before. Because once you start using, you stop maturing or developing. So once you stop using, then you have to mature and develop all over again. So here I was, uh, I 
you could say I was like a 20 year old man trying to mature um, into a 45 year old man's body. But I, I guess the, the the best analogy that I could give is that I, I had to um, I had to wipe out my hard drive in my head and I had to reformat myself. And that was that wasn't easy because I had to start thinking differently. I had to start acting differently. I had to start talking differently. And it was right around that time in 174 that people said, Clarence, you have a story. Your story is powerful. Your story can help others. But I didn't have my voice. I didn't have my voice yet. But people kept encouraging me, kept encouraging me, kept encouraging me. Until finally I spoke and I shared my story at uh, Rockway Collegian back in probably 2010 or 11. Probably 2011. And I spoke in front of uh, 350 students and it scared the crap out of me. But I did it. I did it because I needed to do it for myself to prove to myself that if I put my mind to it, I can do anything and the sky's the limit. And I also had to share my story because it would help others that are out there so they wouldn't feel alone. And after I was done speaking for the first time, there was three or four students that came up and said, thank you. So I knew I was onto something. Well, and that's how I guess I've known you and I've met you in those positions where you have, you know, been very active doing outreach and also in housing. And I think, you know, you bring that lived experience and that empathy um, to help people through their own journey, wherever they're at with it. So in some ways, like who would have known maybe that this would become this career path for you or, or whether it's career or vocational path for you. But yeah, maybe the last decade you've played key roles at a number of community organizations. And I don't know, maybe just tell what what's the experience like being in service to, you know, the people that you're helping and, and being in the position where you are able to help. Mm -hmm. I just want to finish off about the treatment. After 174, I went away to two Indigenous centres right after 174 King in the House of Friendship. The second centre I went to was Native Horizons and they specialize in trauma release therapy. 174 could help me with my addiction, but they couldn't help me with my trauma. And they were very up, up front with that. And, and I said, great. So I, I went looking and I talked to people and, and I was fortunate enough to get into Native Horizons. It was a great place. I was able to work on two of the traumas that I experienced in my life. And me as a man, I figured, okay, well, I've done the work. I've done the trauma work. I've done the inner child work. I'm good to go. And uh, everything's golden. Everything's going to be golden from here on in. Well, you know what? That work doesn't stop. You have to always continue to do that work. Not, not every year, not every month, not every day, but it, it's, it's a continual thing to, to heal. So after I was done at Native Horizons, I was there for six weeks. And then I went to Kiki Kawanakin, which is a healing lodge outside of uh, London, Ontario on the Muncie, Delaware Reserve. And I stayed there for two weeks and it was just an amazing experience. I got to see a Euro Western lens of how addiction how they support and, and help those ones who are consumed with the disease of addiction. And then I got to see through an indigenous lens of how they help individuals. And that's what really started to, to catch my eye because I started to, to have a lot of reflections about all those people who have helped me, all those people who have walked with me, all those people who have believed in me and supported me when, when I didn't believe in myself, when I couldn't walk alone. So I said, I want to be a helper and I want to help others. Shkawebis, that's the indigenous 
name for a, for a helper. So yes, uh, working with, uh, and, and I, if you've known anything about me, or maybe when I share this, you will see that I've worked in a lot of Euro Western uh, organizations because I found it easy to navigate our region as being half Indigenous and half non-Indigenous. And I've become really comfortable by networking <laughs> my non-Indigenous side. So um, I've worked at uh, Kitchener Downtown Community Health Center. When I came back in the community as a helper, that was the first job I had as a peer outreach worker. And I was, uh, I was working and supporting men who were um, homeless and staying at the House of Friendship at the shelter. So I was a navigator and I would just go and strike up conversations with these individuals and I would see what their needs are. And then I would let them know what's available to them in our region. And I did that for a couple of years. And then um, the House of Friendship, the shelter that I stayed in, they actually hired me. And I was with the House of Friendship for six and a half years. Great, great organization. In the meantime, I was I was uh, doing some work with the Working Center. With uh, I was a volunteer outreach worker. And then eventually I was, uh, the Working Center hired me to work at Hospitality House. Then I transitioned over to uh, Lutherwood to be an Indigenous housing specialist. And I was with Lutherwood for just under two years. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy being out in the community. But things have changed. Things have changed in our community. With the uh, opioid epidemic and, you know, the crystal meth, and it's a lot different than it used to be. And I've noticed that, and a lot of other people have noticed that. And because I was doing frontline work for, for over nine years, it was time for me to get out before I got calloused. And it was time for me to get out before I got burnt out. Compassion fatigue, that's what they call it. So now I, I transitioned over to Conestoga College and I've been there since uh, May of 2021. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I never would have thought that I'd be working at a college. Well, and surrounded by young people and, you know, you're someone that, you know, we all can look up to. And, you know, when I talk about you being a visionary, I mean, when I first met you, you were sharing your ideas for Crow Shield Lodge and creating spaces for people of all backgrounds and all ages to come together. So maybe tell me a little bit about that journey and, you know, your your vision for what you wanted to build and and. Tell me about Crow Shield Lodge today and, and what you're doing. And I think that's, uh, that really comes when I really started to, to find out who I am, who I am, why I am, and what my purpose is in life. So with having that understanding... I wanted to create something that would help people reconnect. Not only reconnect with themselves, reconnect with creation, reconnect with culture, reconnect with ceremony, and it would help them with their identity. So that's where Crow Shield Lodge came from. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we started this and, and it used to be just called The Lodge and it was out at uh, Eden Mills at uh, Aramosa Eden. We built a big lodge out there, about 55 feet long, and we were doing sweats out there. And then we wanted to move it back into this region. We wanted to revamp the name. We wanted to turn it into a nonprofit, and we wanted to uh, also attain charitable status. So that's when we started to rebrand the lodge, and, and we called it Crow Shield Lodge. And the reason we called it Crow Shield Lodge, my dad used to call me Crow Shield before I got my spirit name. 
And I wanted to acknowledge my dad in that name for as long as I can. So that's why we called it Crow Shield Lodge. And I'm building something to leave behind to my for my daughters and for my granddaughter. So they'll never forget who they are and why they are and what their purpose is in life. So with that, it was just about, you know, Crow Shield Lodges and Phases. Uh, we're not even done our first year yet. Our first year is going to be done in, in June. We've already far surpassed our forecasts for the first year. And, um, and we're very, very happy about that. And uh, the need for healing is so great that we had conversations probably in the fall about looking for a second site. So yeah, we've been uh, talking to individuals who, who have property. Uh, we've been talking to the region. We've been talking to the city of Cambridge. Hopefully by the springtime, we're going to have a second site and we're going to start building. And that second site will be more accessible and hopefully um, in town somewhere in Kitchener-Waterloo. Congratulations. I mean, again, I had the privilege of being invited out by you um, in the fall, and I spent the best part of a day with a group. And, and what you're trying to do is, is educate and bring people in and share their stories. But, you know, you and you have lots of people that come out and volunteer and, you know, your connection to young people, you had lots of young people, um, you know, there and the conversations that happen on the land and the conversations that happen outside of some of those facilitated discussion are, you know, what has stuck with me and just the openness, I think, that you're bringing people together to learn and you're bringing leaders from the community who have voice and who have influence. But it's in this space, it, you know, it's just, I, I have this visual image, sorry, in my brain, all I can picture is because I was there on a beautiful, sunny autumn day with yellow leaves and, you know, it's just, you, you can't help but be impacted. And I've always thought, like, how do you take that elsewhere? Because it's such a need in communities, not just in our own community. And there's such a lacking. So what else? I mean, I sort of feel like you've really done a lot of really amazing things, especially in the last decade. And what's next? A second location or a second piece of property that's more accessible? A book? Like, tell me about, you know, looking forward for Clarence right now. Looking forward is... uh... We need to find some land. We need to find some land because um, we've been working with an architect for the past couple of years and he's uh, he's done some renderings for us and um, we're ready to go. We, uh, we want to build a healing lodge in this region. We've been talking to the mayor of Cambridge, uh, talking to other people. The thing is, we need some land. Like Crow Shield Lodge, we have money to, to run our services. We don't have millions of dollars to purchase land so that we can build a healing lodge on. This is where we're asking the community and the region to walk with this up, walk with this on this because once we secure that land, we are going to go into a capital fundraising campaign to 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 raise about 6 million dollars to bring and uh, build this healing lodge that's uh, going to be for this region, for for the members of this region, for the members of other regions. It's for indigenous and non-indigenous people to come together. So that's that's going to be on that's the next thing on the horizon. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, um, you know, closing or circling back your daughters, you're close with your daughters and you have a grand a grandchild. I don't know the granddaughter or grandson. Maybe, you know, tell me a little bit about the healing that has happened there if you're willing to share. I don't talk about my daughters much because um they're very sacred to me and I protect them. I'm very protective of that. They're, they're proud of their dad. It took us a long time to get to where we are today. 
because of the hurt that was instilled on them from my actions. And that's something that I have to live with. I talk to my daughters about it and they know where I'm at today and they're proud of their dad. It's funny you uh, you brought that up because I was just talking to my oldest daughter. I was just call her once, you know, probably a couple times a, a week to check in on how my granddaughter Sage is doing. And uh, she says, well, I'm over at Madison's. And I said, what are you doing over at Madison? She said, my husband got COVID, Dad. So I had to move uh, the child and everything over to her sisters. And, and they're doing okay. They, they are doing okay. My daughters are as close as they can ever be right now because of uh, Sage, my granddaughter, which is great. I don't see them as much as I would like to. And I don't call them as much as I would like to. But I'm working on that. One is very interested, and she's come out to the lodge a few times, and she wants to engage more. What I'm hoping for with the lodge is that we can raise or, or we can apply for some base funding from, from somewhere, and that base funding for two years, and then that'll give me and the team at Crowshield Lodge enough time to push it to where it needs to be. Clarence, as we sort of come around to our time, I'm curious about, you know, you've been so inspiring for others. Who has inspired you in your life or who have been, is there a person or a role model that's been there for you and that's really influenced you? You know, there was, there's, there's been a couple people in my life. One was uh, a gentleman that I, that I knew through my foster family. I'm going to call him Dave. And he saw something in me when I was young. I don't know what he saw. Maybe he saw that, that I was different or that I was searching so he, he invested some time in me when I was very young, and, and I, I thank him for that. And at a young age, I was even incarcerated. And uh, this gentleman took time out of his life to come and visit me while I was in jail. And I think that's, that's a pretty big thing. And, um, and he was even talking about my biological parents and that, that he wanted to help me try to find them. And then about two years later, it happened. I don't know if, um, if Dave had anything to do with it or if it was just time. I really appreciate my foster family, my foster mom and, and my foster dad. They they um they they raised me as their own. They showed me what life is all about. You know the first word that came out of my mouth wasn't mom or dad. The first word that came out of my mouth was teacher because that's what my foster mom was she was teaching me how to how to be a boy, how to live, how to survive. So I want to thank them. And then I also want to thank my sister for always being there. And and then I want to thank my Aunt Marge, Marjorie Lee. She's a woman who is who was also in the residential schools, who's set in her ways, who has the unconditional love, but also has the strength to, to tell you if you're doing something wrong. And I cannot ever forget or leave out my cousin Johnny. My cousin Johnny Sailors, he's... Uh, it took me years to get to know this this man because he's very traditional and I wasn't very traditional. And there was a lot of shame. You know, that, that shame again is it's there because when you're when you're a foster kid and, and you're you're in that environment, there's so much shame. Then when I was exposed to my real family, but I don't have the language, the teaching, the culture, the, that flame of shame fires up again. But my cousin Johnny, he was always he was patient with me. And he always used humor whenever we get together. And all of a sudden, we'll be spending time or we'll be having lunch. And all of a sudden, my cousin Johnny will just go into a teaching, right? So I always have to be ready. But my cousin Johnny, he believes in me. And he's the one person that has always been there anytime, anytime. 
You know what also, and Lisa, I'm going to share this because I need to. You know, the residential schools, they were, it was mandated by the government for, for children to be taken away from their families and try to be um, reintroduced into uh, Euro-Western culture. The churches had a part in that. The government has a part in that. The unfortunate thing is my dad never had his time in front of the government to tell his story. All that we have, which is part of this story, is that recording that I was able to uh, able to get. But my dad, he passed before he was able to have a chance at, at, at getting a piece of that settlement money that my uncles and my aunts got. He, he just never did. So I'm thinking, because my dad passed away, now that number is gone. And now that means that nobody's accountable for that number that was in those residential schools for so long. And that intergenerational dysfunction and trauma just keeps going, just keeps going. So now it's not about me wanting the money. I want my daughters and my granddaughter to have access to that money that was supposed to be his for being in three different residential schools. That's that's what I, I don't know, but that's really consuming me. It's been consuming me for the past couple months. Goodness, right? The volume, the sheer number of people in your situation too. Again, you know, the, the people that did not have their voices at all heard. Is that some is that another path? I mean, Clarence, you have so so many different things and so many different pathways for yourself, but I think raising voice to that is important. That's where I'm at today. Uh, want to keep uh, one, one another se- uh, second site. Hopefully we'll start building in May. And the beauty of when we build, that's what pulls community together. That's when you have Indigenous and non-Indigenous people working beside each other. They're building community. They have a sense of belonging that they've never had before. And they're creating something. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty when we start erecting either teepees, tents, or, or we put together our, uh, our teaching lodges or our sweat lodges. It's just so amazing to see that connection happened. We've had new Canadians out there. We've had uh, black. We've had we've had indigenous. We've had non-indigenous. But we're all together as equals, and that's that's the beauty because we're supposed to live like that. We're supposed to live in harmony, and that's what you've created. You've created that space. Um, as we kind of come to our, our our final bit together, Clarence, I just wonder: is there a piece of advice that you give? To young people in particular, is there a favorite piece of advice that's been given to you that's really helped, you know, sort of you in moments of, you know, uncertainty? Is there sort of a piece of advice that you would share with us today? I think uh, a piece of advice that I would share is to be broken is to be ordinary. Everyone is broken in one way or another. Some people will talk about their brokenness. Some people won't. When I came to terms with my brokenness, the shame was lifted and I was able to start working on those things that I inherited from my ancestors and things that didn't belong to me to begin with. It's just, I was, I guess I was uh, the wrong place at the wrong time. And we're never alone. We are never alone as, as some people might feel lonesome or lonely. We're never alone because the creator always has our back. Always. All we have to do is ask. That's a really um, powerful way to close this part of the podcast or to close this section of the podcast. I appreciate it. That resonates a lot, Clarence. Thank you so much for joining me and for being a guest today. Of course. Anytime. And that's like time is the best gift we can give. You know, it's we're giving something 
I miss your big bear hugs. <laughs> we're, we're missing some, you know, when we give, uh, when we give our time, it's a piece of ourselves that we're never going to get back. And that's why whenever I, I meet with somebody, when I spend time with people, I, I always try to, um, I try to give it my all. But I also, I want to leave one thing for people to, to think with, okay, for something to resonate with people. As Indigenous people, when we're on that good path in life, there's three questions that we should be able to answer. And those three questions are, who am I? Why am I? And what is my purpose in life? I want to thank you for inviting me to be part of this. It's always great to see you, Lisa. And I want to thank you for gifting me with some of your time. Mm, wonderful, Clarence. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. And um, yeah, I just want to, I just wish we were together actually, but I will look forward to seeing you hopefully out at Crow Shield Lodge when the, when the weather lifts up a little bit. And um, yeah, I just think, you know, congratulations. I'm, I continue to be just inspired and in awe of all that you are doing, Clarence. So thank you.